You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Lou Stokes, a 30-year congressman from Ohio who served on a variety of oversight positions dealing with the intelligence community. He was at one time chair of the Select Assassinations Committee looking into the uh, deaths of both uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, President Kennedy. He served some six years with the House Oversight Committee, the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, two of which uh, during that period, he was the chairman of the committee, and that was the period in the early 80s. Uh, he also served on the joint congressional investigation into the Iran-Contra uh, incident. And so during that time, he had a uh, unique opportunity to look at the intelligence community, its interface with government, and how things really worked. I'd like to start off by asking you a tough question. And that is, as somebody with this background, what would you say to the average American who really doesn't know what goes on with the secret intelligence agencies and really depends on their elected representatives, folks like you, senators, to both oversee and to try and check things that appear to be inappropriate, illegal, or wrong? Do you think congressional oversight, in the broad sense, works? I think, um, with some exceptions, that the monitoring process in the House and Senate uh, is a good process. But I say with some exception for the reason that, um, going all the way back, to the Iran-Contra investigation conducted by both the House and Senate, uh, we know that uh, there are secret activities uh, which are withheld from um, both the House and Senate, and um, once they are uncovered, then it does require the Congress um, to begin some kind of investigation. We see that, we've seen it uh, during the past year where Congress uh, says that it had no knowledge of the fact that there were uh, violations of uh, our communication system in the United States and that 
there were wiretaps and other uh, secret um, information being acquired by our government uh, with reference to its citizens. And uh, so I, I say to you that overall, I think it's a good system. And generally speaking, that uh, uh, our committees are able to get the kind of information they need in order to properly monitor those agencies, but there are exceptions. As a, as a Democratic congressman working with the political opposition, that is the Republicans, did you feel that, uh, that you were able as, 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 as partisans to function effectively in that oversight role, which I think was designed to be a select committee, to be a committee which, which tried to avoid partisanship in overseeing something which dealt with our national security. You know, I would really have to say to you that uh, during the period of time that I sat on the House uh, Committee on, on Intelligence, that I found that both sides of the aisle worked very well together, that they realized uh, they, they were really uh, very special selectees uh, out of the entire uh, uh, House membership and that they had a special role. And that role was to uh, monitor and, and uh, preside over the intelligence activities of the United States, which is a tremendous job because we are all over the world, and uh, they function in a very hostile world. And it's important uh, for the security of the United States that uh, we have such agencies, but at the same time, we have to have them uh, regulated to the degree that they follow American law wherever we are involved. And uh, so I think the members on both sides of the aisle recognized that they were given a very special responsibility and that they owed the American people the obligation not to let politics uh, rule the uh, responsibilities they had to the American people. And I can say to you very comfortably that I found uh, that the Republican side worked very closely with me when I was chairman, uh, as well as the time I was just a member. Um, if we could, I'd like to go back to one of your specific roles, and that was uh, your, uh, uh, your chairmanship of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Now, that specifically concerned uh, uh, President Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and this year, of course, happens to be the anniversary of, of the year that uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Are you satisfied today, in 2008, that the, that the, tr that the essential truth, not perhaps every detail, but the essential truth of those, assass those terrible assassinations, which had such a terrible effect on the country, um, that, we have, that we understand that essential truth now? Uh, because, as you know, we are a country very given to conspiracy theory. And there are many people who look back on, on particularly those two assassinations and still uh, weave tales about what might have been and what they suspect happened. What, what's your bottom line? You, you've, you both experienced that committee, and you've also read and been familiar with so much of the material that's come out subsequent to it. 
That's a great question because uh, I think almost every American uh, aware of those two assassinations uh, still have some doubts in their mind. They have some thoughts of their own with reference to whether there were conspiracies involved. And I can understand that. Um, and here's why I understand it. At the time that our committee was created, uh, there were allegations that others had been involved with James Earl Ray in the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And those allegations also included uh, rumors that our own government particularly the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was involved in the assassination of Dr. King. In the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, who um, had, had been uh, the person who had been arrested and was in custody when he was killed uh, for, the, for the murder of, Dr., uh, of President Kennedy, uh, in that case, um, there were allegations that the mafia had been involved, uh, the allegations that uh, uh, the Cubans had been involved, and in particular, President Castro was involved. There were allegations that other uh, groups, anti-Castro groups, other groups were involved. It was, um, uh, and people were writing books. They were making money off of uh, the investigations, and conspiratorial theories were rampant. Um, and so that was the predicate upon which the committee was even created. But you have to realize that Kennedy had been killed in 1963. The committee uh, was constituted 15 years after his assassination. In the case of Dr. King, who had been assassinated in 1968, and it was um, eight years after his assassination. And so ordinarily, you start investigating murders within the next few hours after it has been committed. Here in this case, we're starting one, one investigation of a murder 15 years after the other eight years after. And so you start off with that kind of a disadvantage. Uh, witnesses uh, had died. Um, materials and files were missing. And so we're disadvantaged from that beginning. To answer your question, I think that the committee did the best it could under those kind of circumstances, starting assassinations of two of the greatest men who ever lived uh, after those long periods of time. Um, for instance, let me give you a couple of for instances. We investigated in excess of 50 rumors around the country of involvement of people in terms of conspiracies to kill Dr. King. We finally settled in on one which we think was the key um, conspiracy, and that was as a result of a FBI informer who informed to his FBI agent that he had been offered $50,000 to kill Dr. King. Um, the 
FBI agent recorded the information, but he misfiled the file. During the course of our investigation, we found the file, and we found the informant as well as the agent. They both admitted that this was true. But we learned from them that the two persons who had offered, been involved in the offer of the money was a white businessman there in Memphis, Tennessee, and a white lawyer. Both were now deceased. So consequently, you were limited in how far you could go with that particular uh, conspiratorial theory. Um, and uh, one of the more interesting things we did was uh, we actually went to Cuba uh, to, to, to interrogate um, President Castro in the case of, uh, of, of President Kennedy. And uh, I remember during the course of my interrogation of him, and he, he must have allowed me to interview him six hours that day. Of course, you know, in Castro, uh, I'd pose one question to him, and he might talk 45 minutes, you know, and, and answer. So we had quite a day that day. But I remember him saying to me, he said, they say that I was involved in the assassination of the president of the United States. He said, I would have had to be crazy. He said, they would have blown my little country off the map. And I will never forget that. But uh, I think we did a lot of things. I think we dispelled a lot of things. For instance, there was the story about the umbrella man. The theory was that an umbrella man had raised an umbrella there uh, in Dealey Plaza uh, on the grassy knoll, and that when the when the umbrella opened up, that a gun located in the umbrella was a bullet that shot the first bullet that went through the president's uh, skull. All right. Now, we found the umbrella man, and we brought him into court, and we also had him bring the umbrella. When he, when he stood up and opened up the umbrella, the umbrella crumpled. Uh, it was so from age and so forth. But we learned that, yes, he was a young fellow, an activist, and so he was protesting the relationship of Kennedy's father to Chamberlain. So he was there. Somebody saw the umbrella, but it didn't have a gun in it. So I think we destroyed that rumor, that myth, with reference to, uh, uh, the, invest to, to the charges. So the bottom line to you, I'd say this. I think we were able to uh, destroy a lot of the myths and rumors that had been abounding for years around both investigations. In our own findings, we perhaps added a little bit to it in the sense that we found in the Kennedy investigation that Lee Harvey Oswald was the person who actually pulled the trigger that killed the President of the United States. At the same time, we said there was a probability of a conspiracy. And that was based upon a motorcycle tape that we had recovered from the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission did nothing with it. We turned it over to some scientists. Our scientists said to us there was a fourth shot in Dealey Plaza that day, not the two that had always been relied upon uh, from the Warren Commission and any other investigation. 
And so on the basis of that, we concluded there was the probability of a conspiracy, even though we were unable to say who the co-conspirators were. We, we named the mafia could have been involved, uh, and we named other groups that could have been involved, but we could not name specific persons. Uh, we did the same in the case of, uh, of Dr. King. We found that James Earl Ray had actually pulled the trigger to kill Dr. King, but we felt that there was a probability of a conspiracy, even though we could not name the co-conspirators. Well, that's a fair, fairly thorough oversight of, of uh, what transpired. Um, I think uh, both assassinations are going to be subjects of speculation in our country for years to come. Uh, you mentioned people writing books and lecturing. Well, of course, uh, they're still writing books and lecturing about the assassination of President Lincoln. That's true. So I don't, I don't, I don't see any uh, That's true. Uh, reason that that pattern would, would stop. You know, I'd like to uh, just turn to a, a, a somewhat different subject, and that is you, you have served your country honorably for many years. In fact, uh, I learned for the first time today something I didn't know, and that is that uh, when finally uh, uh, Japan surrendered and the end of the war in the Pacific came, you were actually about to get on a boat to be sent into the Pacific, probably to join that invasion force. So I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to the country. Thank you. And, and I'd like to use that as, as a, uh, a peg to ask you, about the future prospects, particularly for minorities, in, and I'll say the broad intelligence community, CIA, NSA, FBI, as we face this new threat from international terrorism. Um, from time to time, the, the uh, uh, executive uh, agencies, the Bureau and, and CIA, have, have Come, come under great criticism within the minority community. And, and, uh, and I think in some cases uh, uh, we see evidence of, of numbers of minority being uh, disabused or disenchanted with their prospects of going into uh, federal service in that regard. And, you know, there are very few people that have had your experience and your oversight of... of uh, of the intelligence communities of the FBI. I just think, given that so many young people listen to these uh, spy casts, I think your comments would be uh, very welcome. Well, I think you have touched upon a very real problem in our federal government uh, with reference to equal employment. I think if you look into <clears throat> any of our federal agencies across the board, you will find at the lower levels of those agencies um, what does look like equal employment opportunity. That's at the secretary level and the clerk level, things of that nature. But if you look at the executive level of those agencies, uh, you will find very few minorities holding those executive positions. That's uh, GS... Uh, 13 and above. And um, a part of the rationale given by those agencies is that they would hire qualified uh, minorities for those jobs 
but that they cannot compete with the private sector. And uh, uh, so they've not really done a whole lot to try to be able uh, to to meet that type of competition with the private sector. And so as a consequence of it, um, most of those jobs are held uh, basically by white males because white women have also not been in, uh, hired to the degree that they should be, and there's a glass ceiling also for them. I think it's important from the perspective of the national security of the United States when we are going to be trying to, to, to meet the terrorism, particularly international terrorism occurring um, uh, throughout the world today, and particularly with reference to our own country, that we'd be able to, um, to hire and retain and have uh, involvement of all races and ethnic groups as a part of our intelligence apparatus. I think it inures to the benefit of, of the United States. Now, we've seen some movement in that respect. Uh, uh, the intelligence law that I enacted a few years ago when I was chairman of the Intelligence Committee that afforded minority youth, particularly disadvantaged minority youth, an opportunity to be able to select a agency they'd like to be affiliated with and then be able to get a four-year education at any top university in the United States. And we found uh, these minority youth that were that had uh, grade point averages of 4.2, 4.3, and who were being accepted at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, uh, all the top schools in the country. And... Uh, and that program for a while was was a great pipeline for the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, and it got to the point where many of the agencies asked uh, us on the Intelligence Committee to include them in that program, and they found to their advantage that, uh, that these students uh, had the capabilities that they were looking for, as well as uh, the color of skin that they needed uh, for some of the kinds of operations that they're involved in in other parts of the world. And uh, so I think uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be for moral reasons, although that's good, but for uh, our own protection, we need to include all facets of of ethnicity and, and minorities in the acquisition of competent, qualified personnel to help defend our nation. Lou Stokes, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and thank you so much for your very, very insightful, thoughtful replies to, uh, to I think, some very tough issues that continue to face us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's been an honor to be here with you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.